Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Aron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking about how to bust through a fitness plateau. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 135 of the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast. Today, we are talking about fitness plateaus. But before we begin, I'd like you to go check out this month's issue of Dr. Bill Campbell's research review at BillCampbellPhD.com, where Nicole is a guest expert coach on this issue talking about, Nicole, what were the topics that you guys uh, uh, talked or that you wrote about? Uh, caffeine for fat loss and how to use macro trackers. Right. So two excellent topics. And one thing that I'll say about Dr. Bill Campbell's research review is I'm subscribed to three different research reviews and his is by far my favorite because I like the way that he breaks it down. It's very simple. It's easy to digest. And then if you want to go even further and look at the research yourself, it's referenced in there and you can do so. But I also like the fact that he includes these expert coaches on each monthly edition. It's two expert coaches per month, and he has them kind of break down the practical side of things and how they would implement this in coaching. So with that being said, for coaches, I think it's definitely a useful tool. But also for clients, I think it's a useful tool to see how a coach would approach these topics so that they can kind of get a feel and two different coaches. So potentially two different perspectives so that this client said client can get a feel of, well, how do I want to tackle this for myself? Yeah, absolutely. Body by science. Body by science. So it's a really good review. I think it's like six or seven bucks a month. It's very Mm -hmm. affordable and uh, it's jam packed with information from one of the best researchers in the field. Agreed. Thank you. All right. So Nicole, without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. Let's talk about how to bust through a fitness plateau. We're going to talk about it from three different standpoints. We're going to talk about it from hypertrophy. We're going to talk about it from strength, and we're going to talk about it from a weight loss standpoint. Now they're going to be sprinkled in there. We're not going to talk about them in any particular order because I think that there's some crossover between them. Um, But I think The first thing I want to do is I want to highlight a couple of things here that you need to think about or consider before you're questioning whether or not you're in a plateau. Firstly, you need to evaluate whether or not you're even training hard enough to say I'm in a plateau. And I think there's there are a couple of first of all, if you're brand new to exercise, I don't think you're going to be in a plateau unless you're not training hard enough. Mm hmm. So if you're brand new to exercise, you should be rapidly getting results. As long as your training frequency is there, you're training three to five times a week, you're consistently doing that, and Mm -hmm. you're following a progressive overload pattern where week by week, you're either getting stronger or increasing the number of reps or decreasing your rest or playing around with any one of those variables to ensure that you are progressing and training hard enough. The other piece is if you're not new to exercise, are you just being lazy? Or like, We have to kind of have that real conversation with ourselves and kind of think about it as, well, 
am I really pushing past the threshold? Like, let's talk about muscle building, for example. Am I pushing to that threshold of I have anywhere from zero to three reps in the tank, meaning I'm going to failure or I'm close to failure because that's what's shown to be most effective for hypertrophy? Because if you're not doing that right out of the gate, you're really not plateauing. So one of the things that I think is important to differentiate too is the physical plateau that you're talking about and a mental plateau. The situation you're describing right now may be that someone isn't pushing their hardest because physically, like they're really not working hard enough in the gym. I agree with you completely. But I also think there can be a mental plateau aspect to that where maybe something needs to change or they need a different type of motivation or they need to really maybe change the workout or change their nutrition or add different meals to their food plan to get past that mental plateau. Because I don't always think it's a physical aspect. And that's why I wanted to talk about this subject, because I think plateaus, there's multi layers to that. Not working hard enough clearly is not a plateau. So are you suggesting a they mental? Need to, are you suggesting they need to switch things up? Maybe, maybe switch things up, maybe have a coach encourage and motivate and reestablish their why and the reason they're trying to achieve this goal. Like sometimes I think people get lost more mentally in their progression than they do physically. Like, I mean, come on, you're going to show up at the gym, the workouts in terms of variation there, you have to still push no matter what type of workout that you're doing. So if you're mentally plateaued, meaning maybe you're just, I know we're going to get into deloads and all that type of stuff. Maybe there's more of a, a mindset piece to this that may be holding you back to push yourself forward. And it's not that you're being lazy, but there may, maybe there needs to be a reestablished goal around expectations. So I have a question for you just to kind of play devil's advocate here is, yeah. do you think that sometimes that mindset, that, that mindset comes from getting, being in a plateau to begin with? Because sometimes you get in a plateau and you're like, man, I'm stuck in a rut. I don't want to do this anymore. Why am I doing this? I'm not getting results. Mm -hmm. Right. Or do you think it's potentially, and I know you're probably just going to say it's both, but potentially <laughs> like somebody's just, they, they just can't find the motivation to get up. You see, the difference is that like when I'm talking about this, I kind of, I'm keeping in mind the trained individual more so, or somebody who's been doing yeah. it at, at least for like three or four months consistently. Right. That, that's not necessarily trained. Trained is like, quote unquote, like, right, I don't know, six years. months or a year or two <laughs> years. Right. If you've been training, I think, for two years or three years, it's expected that you're going to hit a plateau at some point. And mm -hmm. mentally, that might take a toll on you. But I also think that if you're somebody that experienced, you're going to be able to push through that versus somebody who's newer. But on the other end, just like I said before, somebody who's newer really isn't going to experience that kind of a plateau. So would they have that kind of mindset? Like, that I think would be more so like lifestyle factors for them that they just haven't established the right habits and lifestyle factors in order for them to be consistent. So is it a plateau or is it just a lack of consistency and adherence to their program? Well, you're right that I'm going to say it's probably both. Or I think it can be either or, or I think one can perpetuate the other. And that's part of the reason why I think this is a really important conversation. The beginner person that hits a quote unquote plateau could maybe be losing weight, losing weight, losing weight, losing weight, and then plateau in terms of their weight loss and get frustrated when they don't see the scale continually to move that fast. I consider that a plateau in the sense that they hit a wall and then they feel like they should give up because it's not working at the pace that it was before. And so I feel like that has to be worked through 
whether that be you as the individual or with a coach. I also think that a really seasoned exerciser, you and I are perfect examples, coaches that work hard and put in the work. And at some point, you're right, maybe it's a lifestyle factor. Maybe we're focused on getting more education or taking a class or you're going back to school. And so things pull you away from your consistency and your workouts and your nutrition. And that becomes a plateau because you're tired and run down and fatigued. So in both instances, a beginner or a more advanced, I think plateaus happen both mentally and physically. And you're right on all fronts. And the fact that you have to realize where does that really stem from? Is it really that you're not working hard enough? You're not showing up. You're not to fine tuning your nutrition or getting, you know, into a, a meal tracker and making sure that you're tracking accurately. I think all of those can exist. My point about plateaus really is how do you work through them no matter where they come from, start or finish? And isn't it important for us to all realize that everybody experiences plateaus, both the beginner and the advanced client? And it's okay to experience that. You just have to work yourself through it, whichever way is the best for you. Well, I think that who's experiencing a beginner or intermediate or advanced client, I think really depends on what we want to put as the definition of yeah. what an actual plateau is. So what's your definition of a plateau? Plateau, I think more so about like if you're, if you've been training for a while and you just kind of stop seeing results. Mm -hmm. Now, what well, you I just the, said stop seeing results. Can't you be training for three months as a newbie and maybe not see as fast as results as you did in the first couple of as fast, right? Is the key word, but you're still right. seeing results. True. You're just expecting them to be as quick as they were in your first month. But yes. I don't, I honestly don't think that that's going to come. If you're really training efficiently yeah. and training hard yeah. and pushing in the gym and matching your nutrition to your goals, which is the yes. next thing that I was going to say, because you also need to evaluate that as well. Mm -hmm. If you're truly doing that, I don't think you should expect a plateau within the first year of training. And if you are, then you're definitely doing something wrong. Either A, you're not training hard enough, like I mentioned. Yeah. B, tracking. your nutrition doesn't match your goals. Or C, your training doesn't match your goals. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. Because, Nicole, when we get into deloads, Deloads yeah. really aren't meant for somebody who is newer. Deloads are really more so meant for somebody who is able to push hard enough to mm -hmm. warrant a deload. Yeah. Right. So Agreed. for anybody listening to this next part, which I'll get into, if you're new to exercise, I don't think that this part should necessarily apply to you until you've trained for long enough to warrant a deload. And I guess, Nicole, we'll just get into that. The other thing okay. that I want to talk to before we get that I want to speak about before we get into that is the, you have to kind of also ask yourself the question of is my timeline for my goal realistic? Yes. I see this with weight loss all the time. Mm -hmm. I want to lose weight yesterday, basically, right? <laughs> like I want to lose yeah. weight and I want to lose it fast and I want to lose two or three pounds a week. And I'm like, well, you should probably lose half a pound to a pound a week max. Maybe two if you're really pushing hard and you're really stringent, but I don't think that it's, I really think that oftentimes people think that they're plateaued, but the reality is it's just not moving quick enough for them. Yeah. And that Nicole, to your point could be like a mental piece of like, well, you're mentally plateaued because you're just not grasping how much time this actually takes. Exactly. And that's kind of my point. 
I agree with you with everything you're saying. I mean, we're, we clearly are on the same page. I just like to dissect a little bit more of it so that people understand that, yes, you have to work hard. Yes, you have to push hard. But I also think that you have to have the right mindset around it because otherwise, I mean, listen, any client that gets frustrated and doesn't feel like they can keep going isn't going to get to their goal. So call it whatever you want, a plateau or a mind fuck. But either way, you have to figure it out. Like a mental barrier. Yeah. Right. So, all right. So, Nicole, getting into the plateau piece, this is where it's going to more so speak to the strength and bodybuilding plateau. So if you are kind of plateaued in my strength isn't increasing or my bodybuilding, like I'm not building muscle over a period of time, there's a two compartment fitness fatigue model, which means that anytime that we train, we increase our fitness, right? So our fitness gets better as we train week over week over week and month over month and year over year. But week over week as we're training, we're also increasing our fatigue. Mm -hmm. And our fatigue is increased because of muscle damage, soreness, metabolic waste, acid buildup that's causing that soreness, right? That, that would be considered metabolic waste. And then nervous system fatigue. When that type of fatigue accumulates as you train, you end up with your fit. You actually end up with this thing, this kind of phenomenon that's interesting where you end up with your fitness actually increasing, but your fatigue is so high that you can't perform at the level that you want to. Yeah. So if you're always training balls to the wall, and this is something, it's interesting. I have reprogramming for me, mm -hmm. writing my programs. And, you know, I'm talking about the progress that I'm making and the how I'm able to do less volume mm -hmm. and take deload weeks. Mm -hmm. And I'm able to progress better. And had I have known that in my bodybuilding days, yeah, it would have been a fucking game changer for me, right? <laughs> so if you're always training balls to the wall, the fatigue you're creating could mask your strength mm -hmm. and your ability to perform better. So you may actually be making performance gains, but not realizing them until you've reduced fatigue and you're able to train at your best. So yeah. this is where deloads come in because deloads allow you to rest, recover, and reduce that fatigue. If you take a deload week and then you go back to your training, you'll see, oh, wow, I am stronger. I am performing better and I am building muscle. Oftentimes we'll see changes on the scale as a result, both ways, both fat loss and in muscle as yeah. a result of a deload week, just letting your body rest and recover. Because the reality is, is that oftentimes people are kind of backwards with their thought process and they think, well, if I train, 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 I'm going to build, build, build. But when you're training, 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 you're actually breaking down, breaking down, breaking down. And when you're yeah. recovering, when you're resting, that's when you're actually building. This is why sleep is important. This is why mm -hmm. taking days off from the gym, you can't just train seven days a week, right? And this is also why uh, doing deload weeks is really important for progressing your fitness journey. Yeah. But even look at even if you get someone that's brand new to fitness and they are experiencing all of those things that you're describing, nervous system, muscle soreness, because they're brand new and they're pushing, even someone in a beginner phase may need a little bit of a, maybe it's more recovery. Maybe we wouldn't consider it a deload, but more recovery in between their workouts so that their body can actually continue to push and they can keep that adherence, um, con the consistency and adherence as they go through. I think that's something important to address. Well, I think if well. you're overly fatigued, you're just going to be tired and potentially say, fuck it, I don't want to do it. 
Yeah, exactly. You give up. That's the adherence piece. And also the nervous system, you have to also think about everything else going on in your life. Like whether you're an advanced or a beginner, if you're working 12 hour days, not sleeping, as you mentioned, adding workouts to an already uh, fatigued system doesn't always help. Yeah. You need to work to reduce outside stressors or like I always say is perception of those stressors yeah. because a lot of things, some things are not really that stressful or sometimes perceived yeah. by the body, by the system, because psychologically we perceive it that way. So that's where for me, meditative practice comes in and mm -hmm. mindfulness and really focusing on honing in on, okay, well, what is actually stressful in my life? What am I actually grateful for? Because I think that also helps in that process of mm -hmm. uh, managing your stress as well. So let's kind of get into from a training standpoint, though, the deloads and how to execute a deload. Some people will, and I used to do this kind of sometimes in the off season, like after a competition, I would take, I would like train for like 12 to 16 weeks hard. And then after a competition, I would take one or two weeks off. Mm -hmm. Now, the traditional way of doing a deload has always been, well, for bodybuilders at least was, well, I'm just going to take a week off. But what we find with just taking a week off is one of the issues that I have with that now, knowing the difference between the two is I think there's a great deal of regression in terms of performance by taking a week off rather than just training at a lower intensity. Mm -hmm. So I would prefer instead of, listen, if you want to take a week off, fine. I also do think that on the other end of that, people generally are afraid to take a week off because they're mm -hmm. afraid that that week off will sacrifice so much muscle and they're going to lose all their gains, right? Mm -hmm. And the reality is that according to research, it takes about two to three weeks to even start losing muscle mass. So you have to be detrained for at least two to three weeks before you start losing. So that one week is not going to do that. However, the adaptation, you're going to lose a little bit of adaptation to the exercise and the movement patterns and the feel for the movement patterns if you're doing a full week off. So you can actually do one of two ways to deload outside of just taking a week off. You can decrease your volume while maintaining your strength or the amount of weight that you're lifting. So for example, you can keep the weight the same. If you're a strength athlete and you're really focusing on staying strong, your deload can be the same weight at a lower number of reps. So for example, if you did eight reps, maybe you want to do four reps or six reps, right? You want to be able to reduce your volume. I would say probably four reps because that would be a more significant deload and that is going to give you a little bit more rest and recovery and alternatively the other way that you can do it and this is the way that i do it is i reduce the volume and intensity so i re i cut the weight by basically like 50 percent of what i would normally do and i'm yeah. following that same program and i also i remove a set from my program so instead of doing four working sets i'll do three working sets and i'll do that at 50 percent less weight and I'll do that for a period of a week. And then the following week after that begins the new program cycle. And then I'll progressive overload, progressive overload, progressive yeah. overload for three weeks. The fourth week is going to be a deload week and then new program cycle again. So I do it every four weeks. However, deload weeks can be programmed, generally speaking, every four to eight weeks. It doesn't necessarily have to be four weeks. It really yeah. depends on the program and what the objective is and, you know, kind of building out the program. And this is where it's important to have knowledgeable, educated coaches that know how to build these programs in and know where to insert deloads. And on the other hand, there are some people that would say, 
well, we're going to deload when your body feels like it needs a deload and you're just going to rest and recover when your body tells you that. I don't know whether or not, listen, I don't have data on this, but I don't know whether or not I would kind of question, is it kind of too late at that point? You know what I'm saying? Like you're already feeling kind of tired and sluggish. Maybe you should have taken a, a deload week the previous week to prevent you from feeling that way. It's a tough one because I have clients do I do it both ways. Actually, all three ways. Some clients take a total week off. Some, And I'll tell you, I'll lay, I layer in the brain fatigue along with the body fatigue. Like sometimes people really just need to not show up at the gym for the week and they take the time. And I think it's great. I've done it all three ways. And then some cut the volume, some cut the weight. Some do wait to the point where they're totally fatigued. So like I have clients that are like, my knees hurt, my elbows hurt. I'm feeling like really beat up. And I'm like, okay, we probably should have done it a little bit before, but that's okay. It's still like, we still can do it. Let's take it off. And, and they feel great after. So you have to know kind of which one works based on the client needs and who they are, their personality and their mindset. Cause I think that's a big piece. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, listen, any program is going to be different for each yeah. and every client too. I mean, there's been days where I go into the gym and I'm just mentally tired and I do a deload workout. <laughs> like it's just, I show up to do the workout, but sometimes it's not always as intense as it is even programmed and it's better to do it than not do anything at all. Yeah. Just from a uh, habit sake, habit standpoint. Yeah. All right. So Nicole, the next piece is let's talk about really more so weight loss plateaus or fat loss plateaus, because this is where kind of diet breaks and refeeds are going to come in. Mm-hmm. And diet breaks, it's interesting that the research is kind of mixed. I feel like that's something that I'm always saying. But um, (laughs) there are some studies to suggest that diet breaks from A, an adherence standpoint, are going to be really beneficial to the individual because it gives them breaks from dieting, right? First and foremost, I always kind of recommend a flexible dieting approach so that you don't need that many breaks and you can still eat. Like I always say, eat the foods that you enjoy within the parameters that you set for yourself. But outside of that, uh, what we find in in weight loss in general is if you're at a very large deficit, like let's say 30 to 40% deficit yeah, for a prolonged period of time, you're going to have some metabolic adaptations. You're going to have some reduction in thyroid hormone. You're going to have some reduction in leptin. You're going to have changes in your, um, your hunger and satiety hormones. You're going to have a reduction in overall, because you have a reduction in leptin and you have a reduction in uh, thyroid hormone, you're going to have a reduction in your resting energy expenditure, right? So you're going to be burning less calories at such a low amount of calories. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Like if you're eating less calories for a prolonged period of time, eventually you're going to have metabolic adaptation. And like we always talk about, you're going to have changes in your NEAT, which is your non- non-exercise activity thermogenesis, unconscious movement that Mm -hmm. you just kind of do on a day-to-day basis. And I've actually seen as high as like 600 calories per day for your NEAT and changes in your NEAT. So Mm -hmm. that's a decent amount. So what do you want to do to kind of mitigate that is you want to incorporate diet breaks. And diet breaks are actually an interesting concept because the first study done was in 2003 using diet breaks. And it actually didn't aim to mitigate the effects of the diet break, it actually aimed to disrupt the weight loss progress. So what they wanted to do was they wanted to use two different 
uh, breakup. So I think one of them was like uh, continuous six weeks in the middle of the the diet cycle. And, they, and then the other one was like at three different points. It was like a week at, at three different points. Yeah. And what they actually found wasn't like they didn't disrupt the weight loss because what they found is against the control group, which was the continuous dieting group that just stayed in a calorie deficit the entire time, the control group and the diet break groups, they lost the same amount of weight. Now, does that say that using a diet break is going to be more optimal? No, absolutely not. However, you don't need to continuously diet and you can give yourself breaks. And on the on the tail end of that, what we find, like, for example, what we found with the Matador study, which was uh, Matador stands for minimizing adaptive thermogenesis and deactivating obesity rebound. That's exactly what they found is that after the study, subjects maintained more weight loss than the group that did the the continuous uh, energy restriction. Well, yeah, the pendulum swings both ways. If you lose your hunger or your hunger hormones decline, when you start eating again and go up to maintenance or even in a surplus, it can swing in the other direction and become just as, you know, imbalanced. Like you can become more hungry by eating more. And the goal is to minimize how high the pendulum swings in each direction. This is why we say don't lose weight so fast because then you don't gain it back as fast. If the pendulum is slow on in a little bit in each direction, both on the cut, the maintenance, and then the surplus, you don't have these huge swings in how you feel in your deficit and then kind of coming back to maintenance. I think that that's where the mindset piece comes in too, because if you are creating a huge deficit. Well, the adherence on, is the adherence is all mindset, right? Like, well, except, But this is my point. If you create this huge deficit and you have quote unquote diet breaks, which I think is a mindset, give yourself a mental break from feeling like you have to be so all in that becomes easier to rebalance in a lifestyle once you lose the weight because you've already kind of been doing that. You're in a deficit, you have a diet break, and that becomes more of an even balance to create that as a lifestyle for future so you keep the weight off. Yeah, absolutely. I guess I kind of want to just highlight like how this works. So essentially, like we'll take the Matador study, for example, it was a 33% deficit during the energy restriction phases, and then you put them back up to maintenance. Now it's, it's important from a tracking standpoint. Like if you're not tracking, you can't tell me that you're like, Oh, well I'm in a plateau because if you don't have a gauge on how many calories you're consuming and then make an adjustment, like how do you know that you're actually in a deficit? And the other thing to keep in mind is Outside of the resting energy expenditure decreasing from those metabolic adaptations, resting energy expenditure also decreases by just losing weight. And we know this because if we measure somebody's resting metabolic rate, we see that people that are heavier have a higher basal metabolic rate, which means they burn more calories at rest. And people that are lighter have a lower metabolic rate, which means that they burn less calories at rest. So with that being said, maybe you're plateaued because you haven't adjusted your calories in your deficit to match your new weight. So for example, if you lost 10 pounds, you're going to have to recalculate your estimated energy expenditure and your estimated total daily energy expenditure in order to match that. Or I'll give you another scenario where you're going to have to recalculate. Maybe the amount of days that you train changed because something in your schedule changed. Right. Mm-hmm. So when you when we look at something like, for example, a Mifflin equation, 
we plug in an activity factor. And if that activity factor changes, then you have to account for that. And you potentially have to eat less to account for less physical activity, right? I give significantly less calories to somebody who doesn't work out at all Mm -hmm. over somebody who works out five to six days a week. There's going to be a big difference or even two to three days a week. So we have to kind of account for that. But if you have accounted for all of those things, taking a diet break, and typically this is seen as like the Matador study, for example, was two weeks on, two weeks off in the, in the um, not the continuous energy, but the uh, intermittent energy restriction. And the Matador actually, the, that study showed that both groups dropped their resting energy expenditure, but the Matador study at the end of it dropped 50% less energy expenditure, which is huge. That's significant, right? And that speaks to those metabolic changes that are occurring as mm-hmm. you're dieting. So if you've been dieting for a long period of time continuously, you may want to start considering diet breaks and taking breaks from diets. Or alternatively, what you could do is you can actually just do, rather than doing a, a diet break, you can do refeeds. And this is what we used to do in bodybuilding, where we used to do, uh, we used to ju- I just used to do cheat meals or cheat days, where by yeah. default, you would just increase your calories because you just felt like it because you wanted to keep your sanity. But also what I would find is a day or two after that, I would drop a significant amount of weight if I was plateaued. So it's, and that looks more like if you do a seven days of dieting and one or two days of a refeed, or I think Nicole, what was it? 11 and three. Yeah. 11 and three. Right. So 11 days of dieting and then three days of refeeding. And then back to 11 days of dieting and three three um, three days of, of refeeding. It can be done multiple different ways. I think the 11-3 is something that was highlighted. I don't remember who's who studied that, but uh, maybe it was Bill Campbell. But the, uh, the 11 and 3 is something that has been shown to work. That's not to say that, you know, it's kind of like the concept of Tabata intervals, right? Uh, <laughs> 20 seconds on, 10 seconds on, off yeah. for eight rounds. Like, for example, like, that's just what was studied. But how do we know it's eight rounds is the number? Could it be 10? Can it be 12? <laughs> or how do we know that it's 2010? Can it be, you know, 1530? Like what different variations, different variations could potentially work, but 11 and three seems to work in the research. Yeah. I've tried it a bunch of different ways. I People really love the 11 and three. Yeah, I just think for me, conceptually, 11 and 3 is just kind of hard to keep track of because it's not going to fall on the same day of the week each and every week, right? Like, so for example, when I used to bodybuild, Saturday would be my day where I'm like, all right, I'm going to cheat on Saturday, quote unquote, cheat on Saturday. And I know that that word is kind of taboo now. Nobody wants to talk about cheat meals. But the reality is like, that's that's what it was. Um, But it's I would do it on Saturday. So I would know every Saturday versus like, I, what, I got a mark on the calendar every 11 days. Yeah it's, yeah. it's just a little bit more of like a mind fuck. And, and I think when I'm dieting and I'm trying to yeah. lose body fat, like I have enough that I'm thinking about and enough yeah. on my plate to think about. And this is where I kind of think about clients too, where it's like, if I'm going to throw that, especially a brand new client, like they're learning so many things and they're tracking so many things that they've never tracked before to do an 11 and three for them. I'm like, Oh, no. Like, like, do I really want to do that? Well, let's be honest. If you're just new to nutrition, this isn't even something that I tend to implement until they're a good six months to a year in. The other thing, Nicole, that I'll talk about is on the other end, if you're at a muscle building plateau, Mm -hmm. 
if you've been in a calorie surplus, generally, yes. and I made this mistake years ago, generally, we just think up, 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 increase the calories. I'm not gaining weight, increase the calories. I'm not gaining weight, increase the calories. And then what happens is you end up just getting fatter <laughs> over that period of time. And yeah. the reason why is because when you're constantly in this surplus, increasing calories, inc increasing calories, one of the things that happens is you can reduce insulin sensitivity. And insulin, if you know anything about when we think about insulin, we just think about carbohydrates generally, right? Yeah. Insulin isn't just responsible for carbohydrates. Insulin is also responsible for amino acids and just more so just pushing things into the cell. Yeah. And it's kind of anabolic in that sense. So if you kind of downregulate the process and you decrease insulin sensitivity because you're constantly overfeeding, maybe you want to do kind of like a reverse yeah. diet break or a reverse refeed where you consume less calories for a period of time mm -hmm. and then you up because then you're increasing your insulin sensitivity. And then the other piece to muscle building that I think that get, gets overlooked in a lot of people is doing cardio and walking and getting your steps in do just doing low intensity work because if you're not doing that that also helps to contribute to the increased insulin sensitivity and that is kind of a driver of that so i think if you're i, I guess i'll kind of wrap this up nicole with first and foremost i think that you need to analyze where you are and what you're doing and potentially what you're not doing right right we talked about those factors at the beginning mm -hmm. of the podcast but if you've accounted for all of those things, then you may want to, on a deficit standpoint, you may, well, first of all, from a workout standpoint, from a strength and hypertrophy standpoint, you want to make sure that you're taking deloads, you're taking time off to rest and recover. And then also from a muscle building standpoint, you want to make sure that you're walking, doing some cardio to increase insulin sensitivity and not consistently overfeeding. And on the other end, from a fat loss standpoint, you'll want to potentially consider mitigating some of the metabolic adaptations that are occurring and increasing your calories back up to maintenance in a longer period of time by either doing like a diet break or in a shorter period of time or shorter spurts by doing refeeds. Yeah. Balance people balance. And that's all we have for you today. So with that being said, if you enjoy this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week.